Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. Today is inauguration day here in the United States. We are swearing in a new president and so I thought we'd have a little bit of fun and talk about one of the most popular and enduring movie presidents of all time, Harrison Ford in the 1997 action thriller Air Force One directed by Wolfgang Peterson. We're going to talk about the making of the film, the legacy of the film, and its somewhat surprising tie-in to The Departing President. But before we get to that, I just want to thank you for watching us, if you're watching us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, and listening to us if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast. If you are watching us on SEN, I would love if you would head over to Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts, and also subscribe and download to the audio version of the show. It's the best way to help us grow and keep making the show better and better. So I I appreciate in advance your support for the show and what we've been doing. I've certainly had a lot of fun, and it's because I get to talk about some of these movies, like Air Force One, movies that I've enjoyed for quite some time, but maybe have been on the back burner for a while. It was a lot of fun to bring this movie back up to the forefront and re-experience what I think is one of the better action films of the 1990s. The President's Plane, Air Force One has been hijacked. Air Force One was the brainchild of screenwriter Andrew W. Marlowe, who at the time really only had a couple of writing credits for the NBC TV show slash car commercial series Viper. Following the release of Air Force One, Marlowe would go on to write just two more screenplays for theatrically released features, End of Days, and Hollow Man. He would then go on to create the long-running and successful Nathan Fillion show Castle for ABC. Air Force One was originally intended to have Kevin Costner, in the lead role as President James Marshall. But as Costner's schedule got more and more hectic around the pre-production and filming of The Postman, he stepped aside to allow Harrison Ford to take the role, as explained by director Wolfgang Peterson in this 1998 commentary for the film. It happened that Kevin was not available when the script was ready to go, and he was, I think, gentleman enough to say, okay, I know you want to go forward. Why don't you go with Harrison Ford instead of myself? In addition to his charisma and his box office appeal, Harrison Ford also brought a physicality to the role that Kevin Costner probably wouldn't have offered. Long before Tom Cruise made a name for himself, putting himself right up front with the outlandish stunts he does, particularly in the Mission Impossible films, Harrison Ford was also devoted to doing his own stunt work, basically shunning the idea of a stuntman altogether whenever possible. Because that's what's going to sell it. Is this, is it. If you're back here already, then it's just this. Ford's lack of a stuntman actually comes down to what you could call a very zen-like discussion of what a stunt really is, man. And I guess that's not really surprising because Harrison Ford, if you've heard the rumors, is a guy who likes to, uh, well, let's just say, mellow out from time to time. But as he discusses in this interview with Oprah Winfrey while promoting the film, he didn't really feel like he needed a stuntman because he didn't really think that there were any stunts in the movie. I do physical acting uh, up to the point where it becomes a stunt. There are no stunts in this movie. That's all physical acting. Could have fooled us. No, there's running, jumping, falling down, there's hitting, being hit. Uh-huh. But mostly it's just rolling around. Uh, there's not really stunts. It's all choreographed. It's like dance. Sure, you get uh, bumped and bruised and, and hot and sweaty, but uh, I, I sort of, I like that. You like that. This attitude actually makes a lot of sense when you also hear what Harrison Ford's philosophy on action films is, which is very much like stunts versus physical acting. He never really has considered the action films that he's excelled in 
to be action films at all. Rather than just being based and, and founded on a belief in kinetic activity being sufficient, they had a story, they had a plot, they had characters, they had conflict. So I didn't consider them action films. To match up against Harrison Ford, you have to have a worthy opponent, and Wolfgang Peterson found one in Gary Oldman, playing the terrorist Ivan Korshinov, who heads the terrorist group that hijacks Air Force One in order to secure the release of a general that Korshinov hopes will restore the glory of the Soviet Empire, which, when this film was made, was less than 10 years away from its collapse in the late 1980s. This was the second villain role for Gary Oldman in the summer of 1997. He had already played the eccentric Zorg in Luc Besson's The Fifth Element, which had opened earlier that year. This, this case is empty. And Air Force One really does give us some great, not just Gary Oldman villain moments, but Gary Oldman yelling moments. No! You who murdered a hundred thousand Iraqis to save a nickel on a gallon of gas are going to lecture me about the rules of war? Don't! And director Wolfgang Peterson found Gary Oldman's performance so vicious and effective that Oldman himself got a nickname on set that wasn't quite as intimidating as the character that he played. He is Scary Gary. We gave him that because it was very obvious, because boy, when he was doing scenes like this, he was so scary. And after that, when it was all over, he was the funniest guy in the world. We called the whole shoot Air Force Fun. But while Oldman was the criminal on screen, it was Harrison Ford who was the rule breaker off screen, according to a more recent interview that Gary Oldman did with Lad Bible. There were signs everywhere. There was no drinking, no smoking, and no eating on the set. Harrison was standing in the doorway beneath the sign that said no smoking, no drinking, and no eating. And he was drinking a coffee, eating a burrito, while smoking a cigar, and he was doing all three. <laughs> With the president occupied on Air Force One, we also see the pressure mounting on Vice President Catherine Bennett in Washington, D.C., and Bennett is played by Glenn Close. How the hell did this happen? How the hell did they get Air Force One? Gentlemen. Secretary. I'm actually glad that we get to talk about this character today because we just today inaugurated the country's first female vice president. Well, Glenn Close had Kamala Harris beat by about 25 years on screen, and it was all thanks to a party that was being thrown by the sitting president of the United States at the time, Bill Clinton, which allowed Harrison Ford the opportunity to approach Glenn Close and pitch her the idea of being his second in command. I was lucky enough to, to uh, uh, be invited to a birthday party in Jackson. Uh, for the president and seated right next to the president was Glenn Close who we had uh, oh, yeah. wanted to approach for, for to play the vice, the vice president. president so I went up uh, to the two of them uh, and uh, and asked uh, Glenn if she would be my vice president and uh, the president if he would be kind enough to arrange a tour of his airplane for and us. And he did. And he did. Glenn Close was already a five-time Academy Award nominee, an actor who commanded the respect of everybody she worked with. And that may be why both Harrison Ford and Gary Oldman took extraordinary steps when it came time to shoot their scenes together with Glenn Close, which all happened to take place on the phone. Harrison came to the set and did his lines for real. I'm sure he was there on the phone, right, if you, you know, a few feet away <laughs> and talked to her. I thought it was nice. 
And same with Gary Oldman. He came also to the set of the White House and did it for real. The cast was rounded out by outstanding supporting actors, including William H. Macy, Wendy Crewson as the First Lady, Dean Stockwell as the Secretary of Defense, Philip Baker Hall as the Attorney General, and Xander Berkeley as the treacherous Gibbs, a turncoat Secret Service agent who allows the terrorists to hijack Air Force One. I trusted you with my life. So the next president. The movie opens with a joint U.S.-Russia military operation to capture a general in Kazakhstan named General Radek, who stands accused of war crimes against the people of Kazakhstan. At a dinner in his honor later, President Marshall vows never again to let the United States stand by and watch such atrocities unfold. Never again will I allow our political self-interest to deter us from doing what we know to be morally right. There are lots of things in this movie, and I'll point out a few of them, that feel weirdly dated, and one of them is the idea of the United States and Russia being such close and trusted allies, but that was the case at the time this movie was made. As I mentioned, this was less than 10 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, and certainly before the ice started to creep in between the U.S. and Russian relations. I think the close proximity to the fall of the Soviet Union is part of what makes this plot work, because it does seem conceivable that a charismatic military leader like General Raddick could take advantage of a still-growing democracy to seize power and restore things to the old way. Of course, now, with the fall of the Soviet Union being much further behind us in our rearview mirror, such a direct approach wouldn't really seem logical. But at that time, I think it seems like a believable event upon which you can build this action thriller. And I think that's largely what works best with Air Force One, which is that not everything in the movie is logical. There are a lot of action movie tropes and a lot of action movie cliches, but it's not lazily written. Everything is based on some form of believable fact that you can hang the next plot point on. And I think that's really important with an action film. People don't demand 100% reality because, let's be honest, in most of these action movies, if they were 100% real, our heroes wouldn't make it 10 minutes. But I also think that audiences appreciate it when their intelligence isn't insulted. And that's something that a lot of the 90s movies and 80s action movies, I think, had that some of the more recent ones don't have. Which is that even though they are in the action genre... The best ones don't insult the audience's intelligence. And so I think this little bit of realism is one of the things that makes this movie work. As Air Force One returns to Washington from Moscow, Gary Oldman and his band of terrorists board the plane posing as a Russian news crew doing a story on the plane. And while this does again seem like a somewhat believable premise or enough for the audience to go along, according to former Secret Service agent Jonathan Wackrow in a video he did with Vanity Fair, it's not very likely that this kind of thing would actually happen in real life. So in my experience, I never want to say never, but I think it's highly unlikely that you would see a foreign news crew absent of a foreign head of state on the aircraft at the same time that the president is on board. After Secret Service agent Gibbs allows the terrorists to access an onboard cache of weapons, the Secret Service quickly whisks President Marshall away to the presidential escape pod on Air Force One. Now, obviously, for security reasons, the filmmakers were not allowed to have an in-depth rundown of what the actual security apparatus on the airplane was. But President Clinton, after the film's release, did seem to hint very coyly that the presidential escape pod was very much a work of fiction. The 
president says, as far as I know, there is no pod. Remember when he saw the film, he said that? He said, as far as I know. Does that mean he maybe doesn't know? Who knows? <laughs> While President Clinton may have played it a little coy, in a 2015 ABC News report about Air Force One, an active crew member on the plane was a little less ambiguous. So have you ever seen the movie Air Force One? I have. Totally realistic, right? Absolutely not. Now, there is no escape pod on board the airplane, contrary to uh, public myth. With the terrorists thinking that he has been ejected from the plane, President Marshall is now free to wage a one-man war against these terrorists to save the day and save his family. And if you're thinking that sounds a lot like Die Hard, well, yeah, it is a lot like Die Hard. You are most troublesome for a security guard. This is to the Secret Service agent in the baggage deck. I'm going to count to three. I will count to ten. One. Two. Three. I don't know it, I'm telling you. Four. I beg you, please. But that also wasn't unusual for the time. Like the fall of the Soviet Union, Die Hard at this point was a movie that was less than a decade old. And Air Force One was actually at the tail end of a lot of other films that tried to successfully replicate that formula. And there are a few reasons why I think that Air Force One is more successful than a lot of the other Die Hard imitators. One of those reasons is the cast and the strong performances. And the other one, I think, is the direction of Wolfgang Peterson. And he himself talks about his approach to the film and the fact that he took cues from the master of suspense himself to make a great movie. And then it's always great. It always worked. You know, Hitchcock did that so often that we know as an audience much earlier than Harrison himself, there's a danger coming up. Now he knows, of course, but before that, and then now he has to deal with this, and now time is running out. It's uh, classic suspense. As President Marshall battles invaders in the sky, Vice President Bennett has to fight to keep him in power on the ground. And this is another one of those things that weirdly dates this movie. Because let's be honest, in 1997, yeah, audiences very much needed this scene explaining the intricacies of the 25th Amendment. It creates an incapacity to discharge the office under the 25th Amendment. Uh, surely just as if he'd had uh, a stroke. I think the president would dispute that any incapacity exists. It exists if a majority of the cabinet, including yourself, says it exists. Now that scene seems redundant, but let's be honest, we probably would have needed that scene like two months ago in late 2020. It's just that in this particular moment in time, how the 25th Amendment works has seemed to be on every news network and every channel just due to recent world events. And it just goes to show you how sometimes you watch a movie and it just randomly happens to coincide with weird things that are happening in the world. Another one that's like that is the Keanu Reeves movie Johnny Mnemonic, which I don't own, but I also never seen before. I watched it a couple of weeks ago and it's set literally like in this year. There's a global pandemic. There's protests and everything else going on. And, and it's so weird to think about a work of fiction that was made 20, 30, however many long years ago could coincide completely coincidentally and randomly with the real world. That's one of the magic things about movies is even if they're doing things that aren't relevant to the time, they can become relevant just by circumstance and the fact that it seems like on a timeline of infinite possibilities, history is going to produce at least one of those possibilities once in that infinite amount of times. I have the signatures of the majority of the cabinet attesting to the president's incapacity. 
Something else the 25th Amendment allows us to do is to see the actual date on which this movie is supposed to take place. You can see it at the top of the memo with the cabinet member signatures on it. It's on September 23rd, 1997, which raises another interesting question. At the beginning of the movie, President Marshall is very anxious not to hear the results of a football game that he hadn't heard the final score of. Lewis, you taped the game? Oh, it was a real squeaker, sir. Lewis, don't brief me on it. I want to watch it. <laughs> However, September 23rd, 1997, was was a Tuesday, which means they either fudged this for no real reason in the movie, or the president has spent three long days trying not to get the final score of the Notre Dame-Michigan game. 14-13 Michigan. All right, Mr. President. We'll continue breaking down this modern action classic in just a few minutes, but first, a word from our sponsors. Now that we're well into the new year, it's time for a New Year's tradition, which is resolutions that don't stick. I know I'm certainly guilty of that. You say you want to eat better, but let's be honest, a lot of the stuff out there doesn't taste very good, it doesn't fill those cravings, and it doesn't fill you up. Well, this episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but have less than one gram of sugar. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars have just one gram of sugar, two grams of net carbs, and they're only 140 calories. They're perfect for anybody that's following the keto lifestyle, but they're also perfect for somebody who just wants to eat better, is looking for a healthier snack. I know that's something I'm always looking for. I'm always running around, I'm making shows, I'm doing podcasts, I need something to eat fast. It's so easy to just grab something salty, something sugary, real junk food if I want to eat something fast. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars are a satisfying, fast snack for me that allows me to get back to work and not have to stop down or hit that sugar wall. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars have a soft and chewy texture, and they come in great flavors like coconut cocoa chip, maple pecan, and peanut butter. And I've said this before about other stuff from Monk Pack, but you cannot substitute a great peanut butter snack for me. That's what I love about these Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars. I can have that peanut butter retreat, and I don't have to feel bad about it because I'm not eating a lot of sugar, and I'm not eating a lot of calories. They're great for a quick breakfast, something to grab between Zoom calls, or a late-night treat. And they are gluten-free, grain-free, plant-based, and non-GMO. Plus, you can shop online, which means you can avoid another trip to the store by having Monk Pack delivered right to your door. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And we have a special deal for our listeners. You can get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product that it is backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product you want. Then enter our code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack delicious, nutritious food you can count on, and we'd like to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Shudder. Shudder is the streaming service with the best selection of horror thriller and supernatural movies, series, and originals that you won't find anywhere else streaming uncut and commercial-free to your favorite devices. Shudder has the largest and fastest-growing curated, and that's particularly important with Shudder. It is a curated selection of great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. Just this month, just in January, you can catch exclusive titles like Season 2 of A Discovery of Witches, the action thriller Hunted, the horror mystery The Queen of Black Magic, and a binge release of the entire first season of The Walking Dead World Beyond. 
And on Shudder, you'll have unlimited access to watch anything you want ad-free to your favorite streaming devices, including Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, iPhone, iPad, and more. As somebody who's new to the genre, I don't feel intimidated. As a matter of fact, I appreciate the fact that Shudder is able to tell me what I should be watching and it services the horror fans that go there for their favorites and for stuff that they've never seen before. Whatever you want, Shudder has it. And I've also been trying to catch up on movies that I missed in 2020. One of those titles that I kept seeing pop up over and over again was a horror film called Host. Host is a Shudder original. I watched it on the service, and I was really glad that I did because I thought it was one of the most effective and original horror movies of 2020. Right now, you can get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content around because Shudder's expert curated collection includes must-see titles like Color Out of Space, Host, The Mortuary Collections, plus all the best horror documentaries and the hit Creepshow TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. To try Shudder free right now for 30 days, free, no charge, go to Shudder.com, that's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, and use the promo code MOVIES. Again, that's for 30 days of Shudder for free, Go to Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com right now and use the promo code MOVIES. And I'd like to thank Shudder for sponsoring this week's show. Listen to me. You know who I am. I'm the President of the United States. After lots of fighting and shooting and yelling and a classic which wire should I cut scene. Cut the green wire. Okay, cut. And then cross the... With, yeah, the, with the what? We finally bring our hero and villain together nearly an hour and a half into the movie, which is another holdover from the Die Hard era. Don't ask me for something I can't give. The most powerful man on the earth, and now suddenly there are things you cannot do. This is very curious. Oldman and Ford's scenes together are another reason why this movie largely works. This build-up to their confrontation is paid off because you have two great actors that are really committing to what they're bringing to the screen. When Gary Oldman slaps Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford is really getting slapped. And as Harrison Ford told Oprah in 1997, he actually wanted to make sure that was going to happen to keep the film rooted in a realism that the audiences would believe. Because it's not just turning back. Yeah. It's turning back with a look of defiance. Right. And pride. Uh-huh. And an unwillingness to be dominated in right. that way. Right. And that's the specifics of what that moment is about. There is another little thing that I noticed, and it's one of those things that you can't tell at the time because it's the future, but Gary Oldman at one point in this movie has Harrison Ford's wife and daughter, and he basically says, I want you to choose which one of them I'm going to kill. Am I going to kill your wife or am I going to kill your daughter? It's a very high-stakes scene. Go ahead. Which one lives? Which makes it even weirder when you think about the fact that nearly a decade later, at the climax of The Dark Knight, Gary Oldman's character, James Gordon, is on the other side of that exact same scenario. You're not going to hurt my family. No. Just the person you love most. So, is it your wife? Will you stop pointing that gun at my family? It's one of those little cosmic coincidences. That it kind of makes you understand what George Lucas is talking about and all those phantom menace behind the scenes things when he's saying, oh, it's like poetry, it rhymes. Again, it's like poetry, so if they rhyme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. The universe has a weird way of rhyming. 
of creating its own poetry. And I know that that seems like a pretty low stakes thing, but it also does feel like it binds all of cinematic history together in some weird tangle mess of knots and weaves, some web that we'll never really get a full picture of. After briefly relenting and allowing the release of the general that the terrorists want released, President Marshall then single-handedly wipes out the rest of the terrorists on board and ends up in a one-on-one confrontation, President Marshall versus Ivan the terrorist, at the back of Air Force One with President Marshall's wife as a hostage, very reminiscent of, yes, once again, Die Hard. However, Also like Die Hard, Air Force One gives us one of the most iconic action movie one-liners of all time. Get off my plane. We talk a lot on the show about the collaborative nature of filmmaking, and I would be curious to know where exactly this line came from, because in a version of the screenplay that I was able to find online, this exchange does not exist. You still have Ivan and President Marshall in a face-off, but in this version of the script, the president simply shoots Ivan in the head, and he then falls out of the plane, and that's the end of Ivan. Sure, it's final, but it's not quite as dramatic and not quite as satisfying as what we get. And I think it only underscores how much of a team effort making this movie was. As Wolfgang Peterson talks about in the commentary, the screenplay was constantly under revision by both he and the writer as the movie was filming. Andrew Marlowe is the writer, and uh, he we, we worked a lot in these months before we started shooting and even into uh, the production. We constantly, we always do it like that. It's it's never really like that you have a script and then you shoot it and that's that's it you constantly film is always sort of things in development to the very end with the terrorist dead and general Raddick shot while trying to escape another movie would have just rolled credits on the get off my plane one-liner but there's still like 20 minutes left of air force one at that point because there's some migs that are launched from kazakhstan that the plane has to navigate and have some fighter jets sacrifice themselves and scare away and then the plane's running out of fuel and is about to crash so you have to try to evacuate and get everybody else onto a different plane and then you have the final reveal of the real villain all along secret service agent gibbs who shoots william h macy in merciless cold blood ultimately surprise surprise the good guys win the president is ziplined off the plane and gibbs is left to perish as the presidential aircraft crashes into the ocean in one of the i'm sorry to say most ridiculous visual effect shots of the 1990s listen i know it's the 90s i know it's hard to animate water but this is a really heinous special effect particularly because it's kind of the big climax of the movie the plane just kind of hits the water and up ends like it's made out of one big piece of unbendable steel you gotta wonder why they went with that particular effect maybe they just ran out of time still it is one of the biggest stains on this movie and when i rewatch it there are actually a lot of really bad effects there are some good effects like when the refueling tanker explodes and there's some great fire effects probably because they used a lot of models but there's also some really really bad cg And you have to wonder why that is, because first of all, the movie had a pretty good budget. It was budgeted around $85 million. That was a bigger budget than Independence Day, which came out the year before and had way more visual effects and much more complicated visual effects than this movie has. The other thing is that the visual effects supervisor on this movie is Richard Edlund, who essentially created modern day visual effects with his work on Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark and so many other great movies. So that's really the only thing that I tag on this film when I watch it and that really draws me out of it is that despite the budget and despite the prestige of those working on the film, 
the visual effects are not up to par, even for the late 90s. It's almost enough for me to want a special edition if I weren't so against special editions. Sometimes you just gotta let a bad effect be a bad effect. Air Force One was scheduled for release on July 25th, 1997 in a very crowded summer movie season that also included just up to that point, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Face Off, My Best Friend's Wedding, Men in Black, Con Air, and Batman and Robin. Critical response was generally positive, but a lot of critics were very weary after almost a decade of watching Die Hard knockoffs and were a little more lukewarm. The cast is a good one, and Harrison Ford generates sympathy just with his very presence, but this is not a very fresh or a very original action picture. We'd rather watch him in a battle of wits against terrorists than in the physical battle. And that's the part of the that's picture. That's a good point. That's the part of the picture that bothered me. Still, the critical response was positive enough, along with the star power involved and the crowd-pleasing nature of the film, to launch Air Force One to a number one opening weekend with over $37 million, easily beating the only other new wide release that weekend, the Nickelodeon film Good Burger. Air Force One would stay at number one for an additional week before surrendering the top spot to the Mel Gibson Julia Roberts thriller Conspiracy Theory. However, the movie would stay in the top five for seven weeks and ultimately grossed $172 million domestically and $142 million internationally, which made it the fifth highest grossing film both domestically and worldwide for 1997. And the movie also won the endorsement of a big fan, the real leader of the free world, then president, Bill Clinton. President Clinton said after he saw the film, and he saw the film twice within three days, he loved it. Now, I didn't see Air Force One in theaters because I was 14 years old, and I couldn't see a lot of rated R movies, but I was very aware of it because I was super into movie culture, and particularly summer movie culture. So I always knew what was coming out. I would make these little compilation tapes of different trailers. There was a whole show on E! If you remember the E! Network, it's still on, but it's not quite what it used to be. But they used to have a show that just ran movie trailers for 30 minutes, and I would tape them off television when there was a new one. And I remember specifically the trailer for Air Force One being one of those trailers. What do they want? They want General Raddick released from prison. I will execute the hostage every half an hour. What are our airborne scenarios? There are no airborne scenarios. One thing specifically that I remember about the movie and its place in pop culture, and I don't know why I remember this bit, but David Letterman, on his late night show on CBS for weeks before and after this movie came out would always talk about how he wished he could vote for Harrison Ford and he would always say Harrison Ford the ass kicking president in addition to its box office take and its place in pop culture Air Force One was also nominated for two Academy Awards best sound and best editing but both of those nominations ran into the juggernaut of James Cameron's Titanic at the Oscars in 1998, and the movie lost both awards to the eventual Best Picture winner. But nearly 25 years after the movie was released, President Marshall, who would have long ago become an ex-president, remains one of the most popular movie presidents of all time. In fact, in poll after poll via different websites and social media over the years, President Marshall isn't just near the top, He's at the top. A 2008 movie phone poll ranked President Marshall as America's favorite movie president of all time. Ditto a poll that ran in 2010 on movietickets.com. A 2012 poll from the MPAA-backed site The Credits had Harrison Ford at number one, as did a 2019 poll run on YouGov. And just last month in December of 2020, The Rich Eisen Show ran a Twitter poll asking everyone who their favorite movie president was, and the number one answer? 
President James Marshall. But perhaps the biggest fan of Harrison Ford's president was the man who just left office today and took office 20 years after the release of Air Force One, Donald J. Trump. In 2015, during his run for president of the United States, in an interview with the New York Times, Trump was asked who his favorite movie president was, and he answered, quote, My favorite was Harrison Ford on the plane. I love Harrison Ford, and not just because he rents my properties, he stood up for America. So I looked into it, and it turns out that part of what Trump said there is actually kind of true. While Harrison Ford wasn't renting a property from Trump at that time, in the early 2000s, Ford did rent an apartment in a Trump-owned building. But it was not an experience he seemed particularly fond of, as he told Jorge Ramos in 2015. I really didn't think it was such a good apartment. <laughs> um... Uh, I didn't think it was great architecture. I just needed someplace convenient. Not surprisingly, this refutation didn't shake Trump one bit. As a matter of fact, his campaign was asked to stop using the theme music for Air Force One at his rallies by the producer of Air Force One in 2016. But even that didn't stop him. And this was something that I had no idea of. I think because this whole night is a blur in my mind. But on election night 2016, after Mike Pence announced Donald Trump as the president-elect of the United States as he was walking to the podium to deliver his victory speech, the music coming over the speakers was the theme to Air Force One. President-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump. For his part, Harrison Ford eventually took a more direct approach to Trump's love for his portrayal of the president on Australia's Studio 10 morning show. He loved the way he stood up for America in Air Force One. It's a movie. And he liked, uh, mm, and he liked the way... <laughs> it was a movie. It's not like this in real life. But how would you know? But it was this clip from the Entertainment Tonight coverage of the movie's red carpet premiere that really kind of piqued my interest. And I think it is even more relevant, perhaps more relevant than anything in the movie Air Force One, to today in particular, and to American politics in general, going from here to 1776. I think we should be respectful of the office and the uh, mechanism of government. I don't know how, uh, how reverent we want to be about the president. So saith Harrison Ford, the ass-kicking president. Well, that wraps up my look at Air Force One. Again, for my money, one of the best action movies of the 1990s. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you're watching us on SEN, I would love it if you would go and subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, wherever you love to get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us and you want to see the video version of the show, go and check us out on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. Next week, we're moving from one of the best action films of the 1990s to one of the best comedies of the 1990s because you're going to put next week's episode on repeat as we talk about Harold Ramis's Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell. I look forward to just filming five minutes about the movie and playing it on loop and then I can just play that off as a bit and next week can just be kind of an easy week. I'm just kidding. I'm going to cover it as thoroughly as I do all of the other movies and I'm really excited, always excited to revisit Groundhog Day if only to sit down and watch it again. Maybe not just one of the best comedies of the 1990s, one of the best comedies of all time. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Groundhog Day is up next week, as well as an announcement of some themes coming up for the show for the first few months of the year. That's all going to be very exciting. But for now, it's time to go back on the shelf. 
Thanks for listening. See you next time.